Tom, I'm going to continue with another question from Justin on meditation. And there's a couple of others. And because they have to do with NPMR and the other reality, I'm going to ask them all in a row so we keep the subjects together. Um, He asked, during meditation, I frequently get into a state where I am a blank slate, so to speak. I'm not clicked out or asleep but also not fully aware. From that state, I begin to get various flashes of scenes, dialogue, situations, concepts, etc., none of which ever seem to make any logical sense. These might be best described as dream vignettes. The bizarreness of these events often snaps me back to full awareness within the meditation state. It seems that the more immersed I become in these vignettes, the more my awareness fades. When I try to experience these vignettes with my full awareness, I tend to click out. In terms of learning to consciously transition to MPMR, am I on the right track? Do you have any advice or insights that might help? And also, are these vignettes comprised of random NPMR data, brain activity, or a blend of both? A short answer would be a blend of both. Uh, They are called hypnagogic images, and most everybody gets them just in the moment of falling asleep. You get pictures. Some people get more of them than others. What it is, as far as I can tell, and it's it's mostly nonsense, you know, it's, it's noise. So I see it as like the fundamental noise level, you know, of the, of the consciousness, now, the noise level of the consciousness is going to be also tied into the noise level of the, of the avatar, right, of the virtual brain, because the consciousness can only experience what the, you know, avatar's, um, well, the avatar's biology, the avatar's environment, you know, the virtual world allows them to experience. They're experiencing through the avatar. So in World of Warcraft, you, don't, you only see and feel and hear what the elf sees and, fear, you know, and feels and, and uh, whatever, because the elf is restricted by his rule set and by, you know, things going on in his environment and so on. So it's the same way. So there's a connection. That's why I say it's some of both. It has some to do with the noise level of your neurology. You know, if, you, if we look at a, an electric circuit, it's the same way. If you look at an electric circuit, you have the, the, uh, the quiescent circuit, which means there's no signal on it. But if you look very carefully at the details of that quiescent surface, there is a, a background noise going on there, which just has random fluctuations in the electrons and other things that happen to be, you know, part of the materials of the circuit. So there's always some noise. There's nothing. No circuit is noiseless. There's always some just background noise going on. And some of that's in the avatar because that's the rule set. There's always some random stuff happening in the avatar's and it could also be part of consciousness. Remember, consciousness is also an information system. And it could be that there's just a certain amount of dithering going on there, a certain amount of random noise at the bottom level when nothing else is going on. And just before you fall asleep, that's kind of the state you're in. You've stopped processing. You're not processing at all anymore. Well, as long as you were processing, your processing signal was huge compared to the noise. So you never noticed the noise. You start to fall asleep, and just before you pass out, your processing quits, and suddenly you get all this 
crazy stuff and imagery and things that happen. And again, it has a lot to do with you being a creative person. You probably get a lot more creative imagery, you know, in your, in your noise, you can interpret it more creatively. Uh, somebody that wasn't so creative would probably get less, less definition, do less in the, in the way they interpret it. So that's all that's going on. I think you're just looking at the, at the fundamental noise in the, in the system, which is both the consciousness and the avatar and the, the avatars, uh, neurological system and that's the and that's it now if you if you just kind of put your mind there with that noise typically what happens you fall asleep that's the click out probably you just you know you just lose consciousness because that's what your body's doing that's the way you fall asleep you know you let go of your processing and then you get some hypnagogic noise and then you're gone and typically for the average person, that hypnagogic layer is only, you know, a second thick in time. It just starts and ends because you're just passing through that phase between processing and asleep, unconscious. And for most people, it's so fast, they don't even know that they have hypnagogic, hypnagogic images at that point because they go through it so fast, they never notice. But for those that linger on that border, then they can experience these hypnagogic images. If you focus on them, they probably will begin to look like white noise because they don't make any sense. The stuff just comes and goes and it's, it's all uncorrelated nonsense. And when your mind gets correlated nonsense and tries to process, eventually it kind of gives up because there's nothing to process. It's just noise. So that's then you're likely to fall asleep. Now, if you want to use that as a tool for moving into an out-of-body, then you can do that too, because now you're on that level where you really have given up your sense data. You're not processing sense data anymore. See, that's, the, that's where the hypnagogic stuff starts. And once you're at that point where you're not processing sense data anymore, well, now you can just move your intent on into processing NPMR data as opposed to PMR data. And that can be a, a way of making that conscious transition because all that is, is you can look at that hypnagogic area as a big signpost that says you, you stop processing physical reality. Now you can do something else. If you have enough intent left and you're not already asleep, <laughs> you know, the, that the, uh, you can linger on that area long enough that you can remain conscious. Then you can, you can transition because you have let go of your sense state at that point, which is why you're getting the noise. Your signal's gone. So, so would you say that, well, it sounds like this is what you're saying, playing around with that, that state and practicing having or keeping uh, a clear mind, because typically what happens, something will start to happen and then all my intellect will interject and uh, it'll bring me back out of the state. So uh, a good practice, I guess, would just be playing around with that and practicing not, letting my intellect interject. Right. Just, just observe the noise. You know, it's like you're just looking at a circuit with no, with no signal on it. And you can just, that's what the noise, that's what the random noise looks like. And of course you, you are, you are still aware. So you're getting what, what you do as consciousness is you interpret data. Now you're, now your data is random noise. 
the data you're getting is just random noise and you're trying to interpret it. So, you know, that's like looking at a TV screen where there's no program, right? All you get these white dots. Well, if you look at this little white static long enough, pretty soon you see things in it. You go, oh, look, there was a horse. Oh, did you see that flash? And then you're not sure you saw the horse or the flash at all, you know, and the stuff kind of comes and goes. That's because there'll be enough little random patterns that'll trigger some association in your mind. And then suddenly you'll see the horse and then, then it's gone because that pattern doesn't persist enough to actually verify the horse. It's just, that was a first grab at the time. Then you try to interpret something else and it's gone. Now it's back to random stuff. So that's just you as a consciousness trying to interpret data, except you don't have any signal on the line. You're trying to interpret noise. That's why you get all this kind of random jumping around stuff that never goes anywhere because it's just noise. Okay, just by circumstance, it'll start out as a pattern. You'll think, ah, that's a such and such, and then it kind of dissolves because, yeah, just like looking at a TV that's turned on without a signal. You're looking at a consciousness that's turned on without a, without a signal, basically. And if you then say, oh, okay, I know where I am. I'm just, you know, I, I've let go of the physical. I'm still aware. I'm looking at the noise. All right, let's do this. Well, now you've just launched out into an out-of-body state. So it is a it is a good place that you can that you can launch from if you can just stay aware and not process anything other than the awareness that you have already let go of your sense data. It's this is not sense data. So you see that stuff and you think like it's sense data, but it's not. It's just noise. Tom, that sure feels like the impossible to go from that to try and make the full transition without processing it at all. It just, I mean, maybe with uh, when you were first starting out at Monroe, maybe that's, is that one of the big hurdles is to get over that, uh, no, that drive to process it? No, and I, I didn't really do too much with the hypnagogic. I did some, but I found it interesting for a while. I just kind of watched it, like sat back and just like I have probably sat for 10 or 15 minutes at a time and watched the blank TV screen too, just because it was interesting to see what, what would you see in there, you know, and uh, to see if you could find any patterns in it. So that kind of thing. I was curious with it for a while, but it never, um, never much caught my attention. And... Typically, I would go from conscious to out of body in, in you, know, you know, pieces of seconds or just a couple of seconds anyway. So I just kind of passed through it so fast that it, it never paid much attention to it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, the only thing that keeps you from not going through that process really quickly, going from conscious here to, to conscious there, is that you have a belief that you can't do it that fast, that you need process. Like, I can't do this without process. I can't do this without, you know, taking all of these steps in the process. That would just be impossible. And then one day you realize, I really don't need any of those steps. All you need to do is just do it. And then it becomes a lot quicker and a lot easier. So it's, it's your belief in the need for process that requires the process. If you got rid of the belief, then you wouldn't need the process. Well, I'll keep working at it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Tom, uh, the next question, Justin also asks, do you, you often speak of the void state in relation to meditation. It seems to me that this void can be experienced in two ways, from a PMR perspective or from an NPMR expect, 
perspective. And for those of you listening, if we haven't translated PMR and NPMR for you, um, physical matter reality and non-physical matter reality is what we're speaking of. In my experience, the physical matter reality version seems to feel somewhat like resting silently in my own mind or brain. However, the NPMR version feels like a full-blown interactive and experiential 3D blackness. Do these likely represent the same void state that you often refer to as experienced from two different perspectives? And if so, is the difference simply related to which reality I'm more tuned into? Yes and yes are the short answer to both of those. I'm particularly uh, uh, amused at the description of a full-blown, interactive, experiential 3D blackness of nothing. You know, you have an, a full-blown 3D interaction of nothing. But that's very accurate. I like that. That's a good, that's a good description. Um, as opposed to just nothing, you know, I mean, you can have just nothing and then you can have the 3D nothing. <laughs> I understand you completely. I know exactly what you're saying. It's just fun. Anyway, yes, one of them is like a shadow of the other. You know, the uh, your, your 3D, um, full-blown interactive 3D blackness, that is what I typically refer to as the, as the uh, point consciousness state. You're aware, and that is, it's like that. It is, you're not only aware, but you are just totally uh, in this, this void, this, this nothingness, this vast blackness, and you're a, you're a thing in it, or a point in it. Not really so much a thing, it's just a point in it, a point of awareness in it. And um, I guess you have that sense of smallness, of being a tiny little speck in something that's real huge, that you don't have when in, when you're in the other one. That's probably what you mean in that in that uh, full-blown interactive 3D is that you have this sense of being such a tiny little speck of awareness in a huge system that is is all black for the moment. And the other one is just when you're quiet. It's just like when you've stopped your thoughts in meditation. You've just let your thoughts go and you're no longer getting thoughts and yammering. Your your mind is quiet and still but you're still here. You're just not thinking of anything. You're still sitting here in PMR and your mind is just blank. Well, though that I just say that's a, that uh, the second one, just being blank is a shadow of the first one. And it's just because you're still here. When you're not still here anymore, then you're the, you're the little tiny speck in this big system. But now you're still here, so you're still, you're still you sitting in the chair, in your room, not thinking anything. But you have an awareness of being in PMR. And yeah, they're, they're very similar states. It just depends on how much you've let go of the PMR. When you totally let go of the PMR, you're just this tiny little thing in a, in a, in a huge system, a speck, you know, a drop of water in the ocean and aware of it. When otherwise... You're a drop of water in the ocean, but you're not really aware of the whole ocean. You're just aware that you're a little drop and there's a lot of water around you, but you don't really have the sense of being a part of the whole ocean. Whereas when you, the other one, you do. That's kind of the difference. I'm getting that right, right? From your description. That's the, that's really what you were talking about. Yeah. 
then the, I guess the key difference for me is that, and this, I'm starting to see all my all my questions are kind of related to one central problem, which is, for example, in meditation, I can get to that quiet space, but not to that vast 3D expanse of nothingness. The only time that I can end up there is spontaneously uh, when I wake up in the middle uh-huh. of the night, and then boom, I'm there, and it's I have the sense of being. Uh, quiet and still, but I didn't end up there intentionally. I just start there. Yes. Well, the what the reason that you have that, and it's the same thing I told you before, is that when you're in that quiet state where you don't have any thoughts, you feel you need a process to get you to that other state where you're the speck. You believe there has to be a process to get there. I'm here. I, I'm at A. I need to get to B. I need a process to go from A to B. I don't have a process, and then I can't get there. It's your belief in the need for a process is what keeps you from getting there. When you let that belief go, and you just instantly like teleport from one to the other. Well, here I am, and there I am. I don't need a process. All I need to do is just grab onto that, that experience. And the way you'll first do that is just with your mind, you remember that experience when it's the when you're in the void, the the big, you know, you're the speck in the void. Just pull that in, pull that experience into you, and then just be there. No process, and you'll be there. And the first thing you'll think is, "I'm just making this up. This is my imagination because it can't be that this easy. I'm just thinking that I'm in that void. I'm reliving the experience, but I'm not really there." Well, you'll have to deal with that. You'll have to do it enough times, and eventually you realize you just can be there. And you can be just that clear-headed as you are when you were, when you were not there. You're just as clear-headed. You're the same person. It's like but here you were just with those thoughts sitting in PMR. Here you are in the void, totally outside of PMR. And you don't feel any different. You don't feel any more you know, existing or non-existing. You don't feel any more or less real. You're not any foggier. You're not any, you know, there's, there's no veil to go through or anything. You're the same person with the same whatever. You've just changed places, just like teleporting. When you teleport someplace, you don't suddenly get there and, and uh, feel differently. You know, you feel exactly the way you did before you started. Everything's the same. It's just you're in a different place. And we feel that's impossible because to get from A to B, you need to have a process. You need to do something to get there. And if you don't do something, well, you didn't really get there. You see, so you have that, well, okay, I can just imagine and I'm in that process, but it's just my imagination. Now I'm in, I'm imagining I'm in that void, but it can't be real because I didn't do anything. So I'm, if I didn't do anything, then I'm still just the way I was. You see the problem? You kind of get stuck in this you can't believe you've done something because you're just the way you were. It doesn't feel any different. Well, you have to get used to teleporting, and that's the way it is when you teleport. You don't feel any different. You're just in a different place. So you know what you're doing, and uh, your beliefs are getting in the way. And you will have to deal with the idea of, I'm just making this up. This is just my imagination. You know, I'm just projecting and so on. But then just say, well, okay, let me just assume that I am there. If I am there, then there's these other things I can do, places to go and things I can work on. Let's just go do that. 
and you'll go do it. And then you'll say, yeah, but I'm so clear. Usually this is kind of foggy or kind of fuzzy or something. And now I'm so clear, just like, just like I was, you know, awake in PMR. This can't be right, but just say, well, maybe, you know, maybe it is. I'll be open-minded about this and I'll just go see what happens. And then eventually you'll work out your path to where you can jump there instantaneously without process. So I'd say you're kind of on the verge of that now. You're just having trouble getting through the, the belief for the need of process. It's a, that was a tough barrier for me to get through too. You know, you had the, you have to do it. This is what I did. You have to just do it and say, well, let's just go with this, you know, open-minded. I won't come to the decision that I must just be making this up. I'm just feed, you know, I'm creating the data stream. You just say, well, maybe, but let's explore it. Let's see how it works. And after about the 10th or 20th time I did it, I came to the surprising realization, well, it works just as well this way as when I do the process. Oh, geez, I've been, I've been wasting all my time, you know, all these years, you know, with all this process. And I only had to do that. You know, that's kind of the way you feel. But it takes you a while to get there. So you're close. You just need to experiment and play with it and see how that works for you. That makes perfect sense. It's been a, it's been a big barrier for me. And I, and I just have been wrapping my brains as to why can't I just make that switch. But uh, I think I need to loosen up a little and maybe even uh, pretend almost or take on the attitude of just yeah. I'm going to play around and pretend and just keep practicing. Absolutely. Yeah. See where it takes you. And if you find out that you can do all the things you used to do with the same level of, of you know, evidentiality, you know, you still can. You know, you have to go back now to doing some evidential things because you're not sure where you are and whether you really have done it or not. And you've got this, that going on, this uh, kind of doubt and indecision. Well, then you have to go back doing evidential stuff. And then you have to, you know, convince yourself that what you're doing is just like what you did before, but better, clearer. Um, you know, that it's not just your imagination. Because it's when you, you know, that's what I tell people. I said, well, all of this is a change of focus. You know, and of course people go, change of focus. You know, what the hell does change of focus mean? You know, how do I change my focus? And it's hard to say, but it's, it's so easy that you really do just change your focus. It's not much harder than that. But most people can't get to that point because you have to get there kind of the other way. You know, the way that you've gotten there, that's the same way I got there. You know, you go through the rituals, you go through the process, you you get to the point where the process is fairly reliable where you can, if you do the process, you get the result. Okay. That's, that's kind of step one. You can go out of body when you want to, but you have to go through this process to get there. And then, then you re, you can realize that I don't need the process. I really am just changing a perspective. And all that process is, is a ritual I go through to allow myself to change perspective and say, okay, I've done it now. Okay, I can be here because I've I've done the process. And you don't have to you don't have to go through that ritual to give yourself the 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 okay to you know to now be in in the point consciousness or to now be in the larger consciousness system without process. It's a difficult one to get over. It'll take some time. You'll be working on that for a few months. But it uh it'll definitely speed everything up and make it seem like you were kind of slow, you know, to, to, to figure that out. That's the way I felt after I got finally got through it. It was like, damn, 
You know, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, I was the problem. It was my beliefs that were keeping me from, from, uh, you know, understanding that ritual wasn't necessary. I mean, intellectually, I knew that, but it's, it's not an intellectual problem. You got to solve it at the being level. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to see or recognize because I, you know, when I sit down and think about it, I think, well, I don't, I don't have that belief. That's, that's not stopping me, but I know at a deeper level, I haven't convinced myself yeah. enough, you know, right. that it's, yeah. Yeah. No, it's not an, it doesn't have to, you know, it's not the intellectual level. It's not your intellect needs to be convinced. It's at a deeper level of, of belief in process. And we get that belief because that's all of our experience here. All of our experience here, you can't get to B without some process. You know, if you're at A, you got to go walk, you got to get in a car, you know, get in an airplane, you know, you got to, you got to do something, got to jump, you know, you have to go through some kind of process or you'll stay exactly where you are. And that's just a fact of life. And it's such a fact of life here that it becomes a belief. That's what I call the belief at the blood and sinew level. It's not in your intellect. It's just a belief because that's the way your reality is. Since you've been attached to this avatar, everything has always worked that way. And now you are going to have, now you're going to work in a, in a different way. Not easy. It's not an intellectual belief. Nobody explained it to you. Nobody took you aside and said, you know, Justin, you just can't get the B unless you go through some process and you go, oh, okay, I got it. You know, it wasn't an intellectual thing. It just, you just believe it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hard. Yeah. You have to deal with it at that other at that other level, it's almost like giving yourself permission to get to be without any process. Because at first you'll say, no, that's impossible. You can't do that. If you don't ever have any process, then you can't ever go anywhere. You can't, you can't leave A without process. And that's not the case because in the, in the consciousness world, you don't travel. You teleport. And teleport instantly leaves A and appears at B without process. Wow. Like I've had a personal coaching session with you. I really appreciate it. This is unraveling, you know, a couple of years of struggle for me. So this right. is going to be really useful. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, that's why I could recognize in, in what you were asking in these questions that you're kind of on the edge of the step. And it's a big step, but it's suddenly you can do 10 times as much as you could before if you get over these, these beliefs. It really sets you free. And uh, so I'm taking the time to tell you because you're close. You just need a little encouragement, a little help, a little direction. I appreciate it. Okay, Tom. Um, Well, these answers have been very interesting for me as well. I have one more question from Justin um, that is concerning NPMR and this same same, um, discussion. yeah, your answers were interesting to me because my my NPMR experiences are always kind of dual process. I'm aware of both PMR and NPMR at the same time. I've had a conversation with someone in PMR and a conversation with someone in NPMR at the same time. I can't seem to I can't change focus. At least I cannot remember a time where I was in one or the other. I, of course, in one, but not the other. Um, solely, so those answers were interesting, and I'm I'm interested to know what you have to say on this next question as well. Um, 
Throughout my adult life, Justin asks, I have often woken up at night to sleep paralysis or what might also be called a vibrational state. In many cases, it tends to be quite violent and unpleasant. However, I've learned to use this as a gateway to NPMR. Through some experimentation, it seems to me that the typical sensations of sleep paralysis occur because I'm already mostly in NPMR, but still clinging to PMR. As a result, my consciousness is still connected to or focused on the body sense data. The idea then is that I'm aware of the sensations of the sleeping body at a time when my consciousness is supposed to be disconnected from it. Do you have any in insights on this matter? Sure, that's, you, you have it basically correct. That's, that's what is going on. When people um, become aware that they're paralyzed and usually then go into some sort of panic because they're lying in bed paralyzed, it's because they've let go of their sense data. When they let go of their sense data, they don't feel anything. You know, they don't hear anything. They don't really see anything. You know, what? that's all the sense data. They don't feel anything. Oh, no, they're paralyzed. You see, that's the way it is when you're paralyzed. You don't uh, feel anything. And then they get frightened. Well, what they've done is they've become aware after they've let go of the sense data, which is kind of a, is kind of a uh, definition of an out-of-body, right? You, you have awareness, but you're no longer processing sense data here in PMR. You're now processing data someplace else, or you're not processing at all, and you're floating in the void. Well, they get to the point where they're sort of floating in the void, and they go, wow, this is kind of weird. I wonder how my body's doing. And then they kind of get back to the body, and now the body's paralyzed. And then they freak out because they've just become paralyzed, and you know, evil beings are going to take over their body and you know, do something else terrible. So all of that then becomes a panic attack, which they uh, eventually bring themselves back into awareness of their sense data. That happens slowly, but at first because they're still in that out-of-body state, if you will, they can't move an arm. You know, they like they want to try to move an arm or shake a foot or do something. They can't do it because they've let go of that connection. So it's like they're out-of-body trying to be in their body while they're out-of-body, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work as the, as the what's going on there, and that comes across as sleep paralysis. The vibrational state, well, I should ask you, I, I would assume that the vibrational state has gotten less violent with time. Is that, well, is that true? It's been, it's been inconsistent until I finally realized, you know, oh, this is horrible, I'm stuck, and I can't move, and there's voices, and I just want to get out and get away. But I realized that the reason I was doing that is because I was so focused on all those sensations, and I, it struck me, why, why am I hanging out there for? You know, try to get out or just, you know, relax and put my intent somewhere instead of trying to physically struggle against it. So more recently it's been less violent, uh, but it's still, it still kind of has an unpleasant feel to it though. I just, uh, I've read about uh, like William Buhlman will talk about how he enjoys the vibrational state. And I'm thinking that must be a little bit different than what I'm going through because I don't necessarily enjoy it. I just kind of pass through as quickly as I can. Yeah, I uh, I always felt it kind of enjoyable. Well, I did get to the to the very beginning parts. It was violent. You know, I just describe it as very violent, and 
it was not enjoyable. It was, it was a, a violent thing. But as soon as I realized kind of what it was and that most of the violence had to do with my own fear, that if you let go of that, if it's not like what's going on, you know, am I going to be electrocuted and I'm going to be, you know, jerked into pieces with, with all this vibration, you know, and then you start to have doubts and then it's a little scary and maybe you need to back off from this thing. And before it, you know, gets too far because you kind of feel like it's going to grow and grow until it pops, you know, well, what does pop mean? Does that mean you get torn to shreds when it goes pop? Cause you can kind of feel it heading toward pop. And then that makes you a little nervous, which makes you a little frightened, which gets the fear going, which makes the whole thing worse. So you, once you kind of get past that and you go, Oh, it's a vibration state. That's nice. I kind of like this, this kind of float around and vibrate a little bit. It feels good. Then after that, it kind of feels good because you've left go of the fear and you're not now feeding the vibration state with your fear. So they tend, it tends to uh, go away like that. But, Basically, again, the sounds, the, the voices that you hear and the things that happen are mostly the same kind of thing that you get uh, hypnagogically in that you are listening to noise. And just like watching that TV set with no signal, you can see things. Well, you can hear things, too. Now, sometimes then if you have a fear, like I heard a voice. Well, now, once you get the, the idea that there's something out there, here you are paralyzed and helpless, and there's something out there because I hear the voice, then those voices can actually turn into, you know, real obvious voices, not just noise. But that's because now your imagination is running away with you because the fear is starting to cycle in on itself, and you can hear all kinds of things. Now you hear voices talking, well, should we eat this one raw or are we going to cook him? You know, and now you are even more frightened. And that's just your fear playing on the, you know, playing on the fact that, that uh, you feel vulnerable in that, in that state. And there's other things there, but it actually starts out just as noise. You're hearing voices, you're hearing stuff, and they're kind of not clear at first. They're kind of inaudible and they're not whatever. And then they get more audible as you get more frightened and more vulnerable. So that's what's going on most of the time. As far as the, the actual pulsation state, that's kind of a normal state. And I think what happens to your physical body is that just like your, you know, your body has, has a lot of, of, of balances in it. And I'll describe the balances in terms of like a servo motor. You know what a servo motor is? It's a, it's a motor, I'll put my hands up where you can see them, that kind of drives something this way or drives something that way. By servo, it means it, it, uh, it, it's got a, a, think of a radar, a radar tracking an airplane. Okay, now the radar tracks an airplane, it sends signals out, hits the airplane, bounces back. Now, the, the radar is probably doing a little scan. Well, I'll get my arm up here where you can see it, going around in a circle like this, going around in a circle around that plane. So as it goes this way, oh, the signal's getting weaker. Oh, this way, the signal's stronger. Move toward the strong side. So then it moves the radar, you know, it, it moves the radar dish a little toward where it's strong. And it still goes around it. Oh, there's the weak side. There's the strong side. Move toward the strong side. So the radar tracks the aircraft. That's a servo motor. It's got a, it's, it's got a mission to do, which is keep the signal strong. And it moves whichever way it has to move in order to keep the signal strong. You see? Now, our body works that way a lot. There's lots of, of, uh, of uh, systems that are self-balancing. 
you know, like your sugar system. And then you, you see, you secrete insulin, which pulls it the other way. And then, you know, you have your, your neurotransmitters, you have uh, things that create them and things that destroy them, keeps things in balance. You know, your whole body is, is based on, on things being in proper balance. Well, if your body is up and active, all these servos are just running fine. Well, a little more of this, a little less of that, now a little less of that, now more of this other thing. And it's just going like that all the time. You have to get oxygen out to the muscles. You have to get the, you know, the, the lactic acid back away from the muscles. So you're, everything's trying to stay in balance. And then when you lie down and start into a deep meditation where you just relax and everything is let go, well, what happens to a servo motor when it doesn't have any signal? is it hunts. It's looking for which way do I move that the signal gets stronger or weaker? Well, it tries this way. Eh, it just gets weaker. It goes this way. Eh, I don't find anything there either. So it just starts dithering around because it doesn't have any signal to tell it where to go. So it dithers. It wanders. And it wanders back and forth mostly. Well, I'll go this way. Nothing, no signal there. Let's go the opposite way. Well, no signal there. Well, then let's go back the other way. So you get this dithering, and I think your your body actually does start pulsing. And that's what Bob felt is that four hertz pulse that he got. Physical body is just dithering around because it's not got any signal. It doesn't have any inputs. It's lying there kind of hyper-relaxed because your mind is letting go of physical senses. And when you let go of that physical sense, well, you're taking a signal out of the servo systems. See, there's no signals in there anymore. Now your pancreas and so on is doing insulin. It's still doing that because that doesn't require on the, you know, it doesn't require the, uh, the signals from your senses. It does that anyway. But all of your muscles and all of your stuff that is, that is tied to your sight and touch and sound and so on that responds from your central nervous system, all of that stuff now is quiescent. It doesn't have any signal, so it oscillates. And I've seen that at the lab when I was working at Monroe Lab. We'd have a GSR, galvanic skin response, and we'd just tack that on a finger or something. And all it does is measure the electrical resistance of the skin. So you have two electrodes, different places, and passes a little current through the body, and that current will come and go based on how much resistance the body has to it, which has to do with uh, you know, the, the amount of electrolytes and ions that are, you know, in the, in the sweat and then, you know, and in the plasma and in your blood and all kinds of other things. And we've, I've watched that, that needle on that GSR just sit there and go like this back and forth at four Hertz. You know, it just, it just sits there and, and wobbles. So the skin resistance is getting more and less and more and less and more and less and more and less. It just doesn't know what to do because it doesn't have any inputs that is leading it anywhere. That's my guess. No, I don't know. That's just Tom Campbell making it up. It's my guess that that's why we get the pulsation state. And that's why it's always about four hertz, because in this human body, with all of its servo systems, with all of its things that are looking for corrections and which way to go next, keeping things in balance, when you take the signal away, most of the signal away, they start dithering, they start hunting. And that's your body without input sits there and vibrates and then you can kind of you feel that you get a sense of that because your biochemistry is is changing it's oscillating looking for a signal so that's the that i believe is the four hertz pulsation state
And you only get that when you're very, very relaxed and have turned all the, the input off. So that's a good sign. When you get that pulsation state, it's like, okay, this is a very successful meditation. I'm turning off the physical world. So I see that as a as kind of a sign that I've got to a certain point of relaxation. And for me, when I was first doing this, the first couple of years of my experience, I was always that was always a a, a good thing when you started to pulsate because you were being successful. Now, if that pulsation that started shaking you around also made you nervous, the more nervous you got about it, the, the more amplitude you got. And now it wasn't your body that was doing that. Now it was your mind feeding the experience and your fear feeding the experience. And then pretty soon you were shaking like a flag in a high wind and it got to be uncomfortable. So that's the way I think that, that, that four hertz vibration, the reason that works and why it's there. It's really a good signpost that you're being successful if you just don't get carried away with it, if you just let it be. Now, another thing that happens to people who are trying to go out of body and they get this violent uh, shaking, some of that is fear test. Okay? The people shouldn't be out in the larger conscious system if they're very fearful because what you see is what, or what you feel, what you think is what you get out there. You know, I remember old uh, Star Trek episode where whatever... Uh, you know, the Star Trek people, they're on this planet and it turned out to be an amusement park. And whatever you thought about is what is what happened, got materialized. And uh, if you thought bad thoughts or if you were scary, then scary things happened. It took them a while before they, they figured that out. But it's like that to some extent in the larger consciousness system. What you think about is what you're going to end up with. So if you think fearful stuff, fearful stuff is what happens to you. If you feel like you're insecure and uh, things are going to get you. Well, what happens is that things are always trying to get you because that's you're creating that kind of thing. So the a fearful person has a terrible experience. If they're very fearful, then they have a very terrible experience. And what that means is now they are even less likely to experience a bigger picture because now they're afraid of it. I tried that once, you know, and I got bushwhacked by a bunch of monsters and I ran back to my body and I'll never do that again. Well, they're now they're further behind than they were before they tried, you see. So the system wants to keep people out of the larger conscious system until they have enough fear under control that they can go there and learn something. If you're not going to learn anything but to be more afraid, well, all you've done is increased your fear. That's not exactly a great leap forward. So there are fear tests, and sometimes the fear tests will do that. They'll shake you and loud noises and bangs, and you hear peep, you hear burglars walking across the roof of your house. You know, you hear somebody break your door down. Uh, you know, all these kinds of things just happen. You know, you'll get an image of some awful thing happening to some family member or something. And there's all this distracting fear stuff, and that's just to see. If you're too fearful, well, that's a good place to quit before you actually get out of your body and find something that really scares you at a, at a deep level. So some of it is exaggerated, not just by your own fear, but just by the fear, the, the fear test. But you've been doing this so long that I wouldn't expect that is something you're experiencing anymore. I would think the fear test was something that was years behind you because you've been doing this a fairly long, long time. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a part of your intellect 
that still gets a little worried when you start to shake. And when it does, then you get, you get a little more shake out of it. You get a bigger shake because of that, because of that worry. But the, the fundamental of that shake, I think, is a four hertz dither in your physical system, your body, your body chemistry, your muscles, and that kind of stuff. The electrical impulses just kind of sit there and, and dither at about a four hertz rate is, why, is I think, the, the origin of it and why that's a common thing so that's one of the reasons the four hertz binaural beat works is it tends to push you into that very relaxed state it's just a relaxation technique wow interesting tom yeah if i i still i'm a slow learner i think uh a little bit stubborn because i still every once in a while be in sleep paralysis and you know a voice usually it's my own voice which is interesting they'll say boo or you know it'll make some kind of noise and (laughs) <laughs> I've the, the one video I love that you did. It's totally changed all of that for me. Is uh, the one? It's a little ten minute snippet, and you're answering a question about fear, and just the simple concept that courage is the only antidote. It just when when I heard you say that, I thought, well, yeah, of course. That, that's all I have to do is just be courageous and just you know do it anyway and accept whatever's going to happen. As long as I can do that, then it'll work out. So. I still, I still have little struggles here and there, but I, I at least have that attitude, uh, and I'm applying that that knowledge. So it's like again, I'm slow, slow learner when it comes to it. But it's, it's slowly yeah. getting there. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Well, people have this sense that they're going to another place, right? Again, we take our sense of this physical reality, and we extrapolate that into the non-physical reality. So this is a place. And there, we're going to a place. Well, this place where we're in has bad actors in it, you know, evil characters, people who would, you know, rob, you know, cheat, steal, lie to us and so on. Well, this other place probably has people like that too in it. And here I am, I'm going into this and I'm like a a newborn babe. I don't know how to act. I don't know what the rules are. I don't know why it even exists. So it's like you're going into this foreign place where there are no doubt foreign critters and people and things and objects that uh, you don't know what to be afraid of and whatnot. And it's just a whole, it's just a scary thing because it's so unknown. And it's that whole scary thing about the unknown and, and your vulnerability in an unknown place. You know, when you walk around the, you know, in the swamps, you know about quicksand and you know what it looks like and you know what to do if you step into it and all the rest of it. But you're out in this place, you have no idea what to do and what you might step into or what you're going to find there. And that fear is not, again, not at the intellect, but it's sitting inside at the being level. It's the fear of the unknown. And the only way to get over that and says is to get to the point, I accept it. I want to do this. I want to explore this. And that means enough to me that, I'll just accept whatever happens. And if I never come back because, you know, I just tread into something and I sink off into nothing and, you know, my, I have a comatose body that eventually dies, well, I'll accept that. That's the way it is. But I'm going to step out there and explore this thing. And if I don't come back, I don't come back. Well, think of all the big explorers. You know, think of, uh, you know, the people who just sailed out into the ocean and said, I'm just going to keep going until I run into something. And if I don't come back, I run out of supplies and whatever, then I'll accept that because I want to know what's out there. So it's the same thing. So whenever you explore anything, it's like that. You just don't know what the risks are and you go do it anyway because you 
want to because you want to you want to go you want to know you want to explore it so you kind of have to have that attitude and not a lot of people have that attitude they're still frightened so they get this they get all these strange vibrations they get shook around they hear voices you know they get attacked they get out of body and things jump them and they have all these problems that is 99% their fear what they're is what they're having the problem some of it's fear tests that's being done to them they're not doing it to themselves but mostly it's just them doing it to themselves it's their own fear but you can't get rid of that fear until you accept all the possible consequences just figure you're going to go do it anyway and i don't know there's no other way to say it it takes courage because it is the unknown and whenever you step into the unknown you have no idea what your risks are but you need to have the courage to do it anyway and you need to have it like 100% because if you only have 50% of the courage well then it's like you stick a toe in and see if you know how cold the pool is but you can always pull it back out you know that kind of thing well if you only have half the courage those are the people that constantly get the sleep paralysis it scares them they hear the noises or they just get out of body and are attacked and that's because there's just enough courage to stick a toe in, but not enough to say, I'm going in, I'm going to accept it. Whatever happens, happens. And if I run into monsters, I'll deal with them. And, you know, if they gobble me all up, like, you know, the wolf did Little Red Riding Hood, well, then that's just the way it'd be. Maybe I'll be able to deal with that too. So it does take courage. And it takes a while to build up that courage. But that's, that's what's required. Easy to say, <laughs> hard, to, hard to do. Exactly. Wow, thank you so much, Tom. Big help. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, you know, when you get to where you've been doing it, what have you been doing it for, a decade? Well, it, it's, been, it's been off and on and spotty, but, but roughly, yeah. Yeah, so you've been doing this for a decade. You know, after a while, um, I mean, you'd eventually get it all on your own, but it might help if you just – you know, I've, I've been through all the things you're going through, too. You know, so it maybe helps a little bit if I... Well, I think I it helps you... a lot, so... Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, Tom, we'll get to the next question from Lawrence. If I might interject just one small question on the subject we were just speaking about. If we do a process, PMR and NPMR, are we more limited... And what we can do? Uh, not necessarily. You see, you can learn to, to parallel process, and it doesn't really limit you. Well, there is one limitation, but only one. And the limitation is that you have to share processing. In other words, you only have so much processing because it's a time shared kind of processing. So you process this reality, and then you process that reality. Then you come back and process this one. And you can do that fast enough that it seems like you're continuous in both. But you're really just a fast sample, right? So you're sampling the various realities uh, quickly. That's a, that is a, uh, a restriction in the sense that you can be, you know, the, the sum of the percentage you are in the various realities all has to add up to one. So you can be at 10% in this one and the 90% in the other one, or 50% in both, but you can't be 90% in both. So you have to, it has to add up to one because you're time sharing. So 
the only restriction is that you won't get more than 90 or 99 or 99.99, you know, into one because you still have a little bit in the other one. But it doesn't restrict you as far as what you do, what you can accomplish and whatever during that. Let's say it's a it's a 75, 25 during that 75 percent of the time that you're in the non-physical versus the 25 that you're in the physical. You can do everything during that 75 percent that you would do if you were there 100 percent. It's just that you're not quite as focused. You're only 75% as well focused. You're only 75% as clear because you're, you're not, you know, 100% focused there. You've only a part of you there. So I'd say it's not a big limitation as far as what you can experience and how well you can do at it. It's like, you know, you do this, um, a lot of people will do this where they, they parallel process, um, my wife does it all the time. You know, she'll be having a conversation with me and she'll be playing Candy Crush or Pet Rescue or whatever those little things are that the, that the people play all the time. And she'll just be going on that computer, but she'll be having a conversation with me at the same time. She's parallel processing. Or she'll even be listening to an audio book. We listen to a lot of audio books and she'll be listening to an audio book and she'll be going away on her little handheld device, you know, playing these games at the same time. Well, as it turns out, she only gets about 80 or 90% of what's being said on the audiobook, which is generally enough to follow the storyline and you just lose little details. But often when she misses something, I can tell her what it is because I don't do that. I'm more of a one-track mind. You know, that's what happens when you've got an X and a Y together instead of two Xs is that I don't parallel process physical things so well as she does. So... I just listen to the audiobook and I hear every word and every, you know, every utterance that comes across the speaker. I hear it and I hear it clearly. She gets about 80, 90% of them because she's time sharing between looking at her thing, deciding what she has to do next, what, what box she has to put, what her strategy is there. And when her mind is engaged in that, it's not listening to the audiobook. So it's a timeshare. So how effective can you listen to an audiobook and still play a game? You see, how, how effective can you have a conversation and still play a game? Well, if the conversation isn't really taxing, this is a small talk or something, probably perfectly well. You can probably play two games and have a conversation like that. But if the conversation is really deep and demanding of your intellect and of your logic, well, you find that you go slower and slower on your game and then you put it aside because you can't do the two things together. So that's the kind of restrictions that you have if you're always doing both of them at once. And the reason for doing both of them at once is I suspect that contact with PMR is reassuring. You've always got one foot back home. So it's like you can really move quickly. You know, if the monster comes out, you you can you can leave in an instant because you've got a you've got a lifeline you know tied into PMR that you can jump back in an instant. It's probably that a fear of letting go completely and being adrift in that other scary place without the without the connection back to PMR is just a little more than what you feel comfortable with. That's why you do that. But it doesn't slow you down much. You see. If what you're doing in the non-physical doesn't require that much focus, you can do it fine on 75% or 80 or 90%. It's not a problem. So it doesn't limit you other than the 
how tightly you focus on it, how much logic, how much understanding, how much of your processing time is required. Well, the more that's required, then the more you have to take it out of whatever else you're putting it in. You've only got so much. So that's it. So in a way, it restricts you, and in a way, it doesn't. And it probably gives you that safety, that feeling of safety that makes it uh, more comfortable for you to do it that way. I kind of, when I was working at Monroe, you know, we had to, we always had to tell Bob what we were doing so that Bob would have some idea of how to, how to give us guidance. Because if we just said, oh, yeah, I had a really wild time, well, you can't give much guidance for that. You know, you have to actually understand what's going on. So we had these mics right at our lips, and we would report back and tell him everything. And some people would report back while they were having the experience. They were having the experience and talking to Bob at the same time. I was not one of those. I'd always go have the experience and then come back and tell him about it and then go back and have the experience. So I was 100% there. And then I'd come back and I'd be maybe 10% here and talk. And then I'd only be 90% there. And then I'd go back and I'd be 100% there and I wouldn't be talking. And I have to come back at least 5 or 10%, whatever, whatever percent that I could make cogent sentences and, and you know think and talk. So that's the way it would work. So I wasn't 100% there and then 100% talking. I was like 100% there in the non-physical and then maybe 10% to talk. Still connected there, but not engaged as as tightly as that sort of thing. So I'd come back and forth and back and forth. But uh, typically I would go 100%. When I was gone, I was gone. And then I'd come back to talk. Other people didn't do that. Other people probably parallel processed like you did and talked and experienced at the same time. That was one of the unusual things about me when I was at Monroe Laboratories is I was the one that had to come back to talk as opposed to the one that just talked while they were having the experience. Most people did parallel process it and kept a foot here in PMR, and I didn't. I was always 100% in just my personality, I guess. That's just the way it was always kind of an all or nothing, you know, so I'd, I'd go 100%. And then I'd have to come back to talk.